Christ Church. Segment 1 A fictitious memoir by Rooney Moran, a psychologist without the age. A shaken man in a shaken city in a shaken world. Please forgive Rooney for the quality of this podcast. He's still getting the hang of this voice editing business. The first time I saw that golden dome across the park amongst the trees, my thoughts were that this was another place, somewhere foreign, not ever part of me. My city was in ruins then, two earthquakes saw to that, rubble and ruins everywhere, God's apocalyptic wrath. Rooney. The moment I heard about what happened at the mosque, I knew he would be dead. Mother was so proud of that mosque, he'd helped to get the first foundations laid. In session, he said there was a sign up by the door, written in English and Arabic. The sign said, All were welcome. He made that sign himself. He was adept at woodwork. He may have been the first to open the door of that mosque. I wouldn't have been surprised. The first of the faithful gunned down. I don't know. I've never watched the footage that he, who will not be named, put on social media, and I never will. When I came back to Christchurch, Muzzah was one of my first clients. I'd just set up rooms and hadn't had more than a laminated sign blue tacked to my door to indicate my presence. Muzza fixed that the second time he came to see me. He carried something the size of a breadboard under his arm and he held a cordless drill and some screws. Before I could eject, he screwed the board to my door. It said, Rooney Moran. Registered psychologist. Only the H was missing in psychologist. He obviously copied the wording from my hastily drafted business card where I had misspelled it. All that, it was a beautiful sign though, with routed edges and gold paint in the letters where they had been cut out into the wood. Even now, from time to time, there would be a smart aleck who would point out the misspelling and I'd tell them the story. I'd use it as a therapeutic tool, 
point out the dangers of asserting one set of ideas over another. Some of them would get offended and not come back, and that would be fine by me. There's too much offence around these days. If they didn't want help with that, I couldn't help them. Psychologist without the H was fine in my dictionary. When I was growing up in Christchurch, I didn't know about Islam. There's a takeaway shop in Cathedral Square. We used to go there after the pub. We used to call it the Greasy Greeks. We didn't know it was Turkish people who ran it. Spire of that mighty cathedral in the square, when it toppled in the earthquake, could have been pointing like the arrow of my cursor directly where that shop once stood. Mazafa was related to the family who ran the takeaway. As a young man in his twenties, he had worked in that shop. He may have been making me a cheeseburger and chips while I played Space Invaders, waiting for the last bus to take me back to the suburbs. The day I was born in Christchurch Public Hospital, Mazza, a fresh-faced 18-year-old, was just getting off the plane at Harewood, where the airport is. That's what we like to tell each other. It was a good story. It was about the same time when the two events coincided. We'd both left and come back several times. He went back to Turkey and promptly got conscripted into the army, returning later with a wife and kids. He still made the trip back to Turkey at least once every few years. Me, I left home when I was 19. I just drifted around for many years, returning to Christchurch from time to time, usually for family occasions. Then I'd go off again. This was the first time that I'd been back in Christchurch for any length of time myself. My marriage had broken up. There was nothing to keep me in Sydney. After the earthquake, there was plenty for a psychologist to do. My elderly parents needed keeping an eye on. They had passed now, but here I was. Mother was a grandfather now. A jovial, portly man. His strong accent and chin-strap beard belying the fact he was more a local than the punks who attacked him one Friday night when he was driving his taxi. That's why I had been seeing him initially. He was shaken and confused. His adopted city had turned on him, or so it seemed. But the cards, flowers and well wishes of his many friends, plus his strong faith, had seen him through. Our sessions were very chatty. I wanted to ask him about his assault, but he was an uncomplicated bloke and didn't want to talk about it. We ended up talking about his grandkids, his garden, and the new mosque. He was excited about the new mosque. He was involved in getting it built. He helped raise some of the funds. It seemed about time. Prior to that, they just had to set up a temporary mosque in the living rooms of one or other of the people's houses. But the community was expanding. They needed a place. He didn't want to dwell on the issue of the salt, and I didn't press him. He said he experienced worse when he was in the army. I confess, I was complicit in letting him brush it under the carpet. It was easy after a while to imagine it could happen to any older man driving a taxi later at night. I'd forgotten about the derogatory names they'd called him. Names which I wouldn't embarrass him by repeating. Besides, those punks were from out of town, but I've seen plenty of locals around the place who could have done the same. 
Our sessions would end with him shaking my hand and carrying a big bag of my shredded paper over his shoulder. He wanted the paper to feed his chickens. I imagined his chickens produced eggs speckled with bits of letters and blue biro. Angel Angel noted that her heart was beating fast that morning and she was feeling flushed as she walked into the interview room. Fox had been waiting there in the corridor, seated next to Reese. Reese had smiled at her a good morning. Fox didn't make eye contact. Had she done something wrong? Whatever it was, she'd try and find out. Smooth as ruffled feathers. But first she would have to calm down. Angel had been running late that morning, trying to decide whether to do up the top button on her blouse or leave it undone. She must have spent ten minutes in front of the mirror doing it up and undoing it when she realised how late it was getting. Angel opted for the first option, but it was undone now. She must have done it in the car without thinking. Then she caught the worst of the traffic on Victoria Road because she left late. She rushed through security and went straight up to the interview room. She was glad Reese was there. He was easy going and eager to please. The guy reminded her of one of her gay friends at high school, all sweet concern when she had boyfriend troubles. Angel put her bag on the desk, sat quietly and did her breathing, giving up after less than 30 seconds. It wasn't going to work this day. She called Mr. Fox in. He was in the door even before she had finished calling his name, taking his seat in the chair on the other side of the desk as he was supposed to do. Angel was in the seat nearest the door, nearest the one exit. He seemed to look right into her, pupils big, black and dark. You kept me waiting for twenty minutes, he said. I fucking felt I was losing it out there, talking about the footy as if I was his mate and we were passing the time at the bus stop. Well, I'm not his fucking mate. Let's just calm down. Let's do some breathing. Settle things down. I can't fucking settle down. Come on, Bruce. The bitch visited yesterday, he said. She was supposed to bring the kid. Made some excuse. He was supposed to be here. Okay, we'll talk about that. Talk. All we fucking do is talk. Doesn't change anything. Come on, just breathe. Those eyes. God, those eyes. She shut her eyes, but she could still feel them on her. She took a deep breath. He took a breath. Good, just breathe. Another breath. Good. Another breath. Angel was just starting to think she was getting there. Just starting to lapse into a lack of self-awareness. Just starting to think. Think of last night. Damn it. His breath caught too. I can't do this. Not with him just outside the door, he said. They have to be there, Bruce. You know that. Get rid of her. He hissed under his breath. She got up without thinking and went to the door. She smiled sweetly at Reese through the gap in the doorway. Ah, Reese. She gave a little gesture with her head towards the left, indicating that he could go back to his crossword on the table at the end of the corridor. They played out the scenario before and Reese did like his morning crossword. Are you sure? Of course, everything's fine. 
He smiled with the words. Angel closed the door gently and froze. He was right behind her, hands somehow underneath her bare midriff, nose nuzzling her hair, mouth kissing her neck, wondering in the midst of the overwhelming sensation whether she was still in last night's dream. Then she was lost like she was drowning, the waves almost ready to claim her. Then she was at the surface again. At one point she raised her head. It wasn't a dream. The desk calendar with the scribbles of red and blue biro, her notepad, the pen she had gotten for a present, and she was lost again. And again, and she didn't care. Then she was at the surface again. She could see the corrective services poster on the wall behind with the blue shield heading and the dot points below. The last dot point she was thinking should be, and mate should not fuck the staff. Under the waves again. Then, at the surface. Her bag on the edge of the desk, peculiar angle, about to topple. Shit! She desperately tried to free her left arm to grab the bag with the duress alarm that goes off when horizontal. Shit! She freed her arm, lunged, touched, but didn't grasp the shoulder strap as it disappeared behind the desk. She had five seconds to reset the thing, and she needed two hands to press the two buttons to do it. Even then, the emergency response team would be on their way. Shit! She fumbled in a bag underneath her desk. Where was the fucking thing? Underneath all the crap, the papers, the lipstick, the car keys. She thought she found it, pulled it out, but it was a fucking mobile. She dived in again, found it at last, beeping away, and it wasn't going to reset. Angel was trying to pull her half on knickers with one hand and dial the switchboard with the other. They burst in in full gear, guns at the ready, Reese following sheepishly behind. Inmate Fox sat innocently and composed where he should be, seated behind the desk further down from the exit. Two of the team grabbed Fox roughly, cuffed him and marched him out. Even then, in the midst of it all, she was worried about him, worried about how he might be treated. Look, it's not what it seems, was all she could say, as if she was a character in some British naughty sex farce entitled Carry On in the Nick. The third man, an apparent leader, took the handset gently from her, muttered to the person on the other line something about the situation being contained, and put it back down on the cradle. Well, when you got yourself together, he said to her, looking her up and down, you can tell us all about it. With that, he shut the door. Simon One day I failed to read the signs in Dad and I paid the price. Boy, did I pay the price. Dad had been to the bank that morning. Of all the outsiders he had to deal with, the banks put him in the worst mood. He came home, he did. He changed out of his one suit and went straight down to the shed. Jacob had been giving me heaps that morning. I was supposed to be in charge, but he was at the age that he wasn't going to take orders from me. Dad was putting newly made cartridges into his shotgun. His hands were shaking. I was so preoccupied with Jacob that I didn't notice at first. I started to speak. Dad, Jacob's been, been. In one movement, Dad closed the stop, swung the gun around and aimed it. What are you doing coming bursting in here? You don't come in here. As he was saying this, he walked towards me. It was like he was somebody else he was. I'd seen him angry before, but not like this. I started stammering. I couldn't get the words out. He was a couple of feet away and he had the gun pointed directly at my chest and he was moving closer. Dad, Dad, I, I said to him as he got closer. I stepped back. Dad was swinging around so that he was between me and the door and raising the gun so the barrel was at my face. I could only see the twin barrels right before my eyes. 
I could smell the metal and the cordite and the oil, and still the barrel moved closer. I turned my head away and the barrel was at my neck, underneath my jaw, top edge of the barrel under my jawbone. He had me against the wall now. I dislodged something. It crashed down onto the bench and made a hell of a racket. I thought it'd be enough for the trigger to go off. The gun had a hair trigger. It wouldn't have taken much. I felt liquid running down my leg. I thought it was oil from the can. But then the smell of my own shit wafted up, mixing with the other smells. Dad, Dad, remember Isaac, remember Isaac, I said. What? He says. Abraham and Isaac. You know, we read about it the other night. I don't know what made me come up with that one. I had to think of something. It could have been the wrong thing to say. I don't think Dad was doing this out of obedience to God. I don't think he was expecting an angel to intervene. Isaac was also the name of my older brother. Isaac died a couple of days after birth. I don't think Dad ever got over that. I don't think in his eyes I could ever live up to my dead brother. Dad lowered the gun. He looked down with disgust at the soiled mess. Go and clean yourself up, was all he said. I made it to the door of the shed before I threw up, tears and snot mixing with the puke. I looked back at Dad, half expecting a spray of shotgun fire to meet me. But he had his back to me, calmly putting the shotgun back in the rack. Then he went back to his bench, started packing another shell, then he set out this god-awful wail. I never heard it before. It was like he had turned into some kind of animal. I didn't wait around. I ran as fast as I could down to the creek jumped in fully clothed, and washed everything off myself. I went and hid somewhere until it got dark and my clothes were dry. I didn't understand what was going on. Maybe I should have warned Jacob, but I didn't. I was mad at him for causing all this. I was just a kid. I was hoping Dad would have gone down there with his shotgun and seen Jacob mucking about and shot him, I did. I know I shouldn't have thought that, but I did. Rooney I looked in the rear-view mirror. The cop flashed blue lights and a kind of pulu of a siren cut off in mid-sentence. I watched the cop struggle to get out of the car, his girth impeding him, as if he was trying to get out of the car behind a half-inflated airbag, his recently donned cap knocked askew by the doorframe. He was big all right, a hippopotamus in a blue suit. Can I see your license, please? I lifted a cheek and let a silent fart escape as I retrieved my wallet. Sorry, I didn't see that 50k sign, officer. I think it was obscured by that truck back there. He scribbled on his pad with fat little fingers, tore out the dreaded copy underneath with the grey with stenciled lettering. I gasped at the amount of the fine. He clocked me at 20k's over the bastard. If you want to contest this, you'll find the details on the back. He waddled back to the warmth of the police car. I tossed the offending piece of paper onto the passenger seat and drove off indignantly to work. I've worked with paedophiles before. I remember one guy, the most miserable wretch I'd ever seen, cornered and cowering in a caged cell next to the officer's station. He'd chosen not to go on protection, so they put him there temporarily to keep an eye on him but in reality to point him out as someone different, like some abhorrent villager under the stocks, to be hurled abuse and rotten fruit in equal measure. I've been called down from my offices above to try and talk this guy out of suicide. No small task since less than 48 hours ago, this guy had been a normal villager going about his normal life, 
settling the bit about following young boys into the park toilet block and exposing himself there. So at first glance, Simon was like this guy, same cowering quick glance and look away, the only eye contact made, all hunched back and shoulder, stubble and unkempt greasy black hair. Instead of cowering in a cage, he cowered on my couch, mumbling something about having to be there, probation and parole and all that. Usually I do a little research when a new client comes my way. I look at what's available online, any new ideas that have come up. I was intrigued by a clip from a psychologist in a sex offenders program in Tasmania, historically renowned for its approaches to offender reform, who was saying, So we're at this camp sitting around a bonfire. This chap says to me, What about love? And I said to him, What about love? And he said, Well, it was more than sexual. I was really in love with this girl. I keep handy by my camp chair a little pot of mud, which I call my bucket of shit. I reached down, grabbed a handful of mud, and threw some at him. The guy was taken aback, he goes. What was that for? I said, You throw shit at me, I'm going to throw shit back. Well, I might not know as much about sex offending as this psychologist in a sex offender program, but I do know about human nature. These guys are the lowest of the low as far as society is concerned. Unless they are complete narcissists without a shred of conscience, having some expert throw mud or shit at them for asking a legitimate question is only going to have the effect of not asking any questions anymore. The rest of the group are going to behave in the same manner. The important questions are going to be left unsaid and unasked. Simon I got out of home as fast as I could. I did as soon as I was 17. I was out of there. Jacob was standing up to Dad, so at least my mum and sister were safer. I don't blame Dad now. He was a product of his own stuffed-up childhood. We get on better now. Back then I was an innocent kid with whom he put a loaded shotgun to the head of. Now, here I am a convicted pedophile. His grandkids scattered to the four winds because of me, and he embraces me like the prodigal son in one of the stories he used to force us to read before bed at night. I used to long to have a father like the father in that story. If the father had been like Dad, that prodigal son would never have come home. The younger son would have taken off as well. My forays on my own initially didn't take me that far. I just did other fencing work around the district. Once I got away from Dad, I started to come out of my shell a bit, but it didn't last long. I met Donna at a country dance. Somehow, we hooked up. I say somehow, because she was nearly as shy as I was. There was a bit of a struggle in the early days. There wasn't much money around, and the cockies, that's what we called the farmers, got their value out of me. My back started playing up. Dad kept on at me to come back, to help him out. He thought I was weak, said that he'd keep working with a bad back, so why couldn't I? But Dad wasn't human. I mean, he was bought up in the days when you just got on with it. Pioneering stock, I suppose. There was no such thing as painkillers in those days. Painkillers were my undoing, I reckon. Anyway, Jacob was getting bigger. He was still there to give Dad a hand, but I knew he wouldn't stay there long. He just disappeared one day after he had a row with the old man, went up north somewhere. Dad was pretty bitter after Jacob left. I copped it every time I went into town. He had plenty of brothers and sisters, cousins and nephews around the place. They were all on at me to help the old man out. I got into a fight with my cousin outside the boozer over that. 
He got the better of me, he did. I couldn't even go into the pub to have a beer after work without somebody harping on at me. I thought, stuff them, I thought. They could help him, then they'll know what he is really like. I might have come back, if only to make sure Mum was okay. But Dad could be a shrewd bugger when he wanted to be. I knew he wouldn't hurt Mum. She was the only one that stuck by him in the end. It got to the stage where I had to leave the district too. We went across the ditch to Oz. I had an old school buddy, Jono. He moved to a little town in the Hunter Valley. We set up near him. I picked up work again, doing farm labouring. Donna and I would be living in some rented farmhouse. I'd be doing fencing, but it was back-breaking work, and it was all I knew. There was plenty of work, and it was better money, but the ground was hard and dry, and there was a lot of ground to cover. The farmers would work us to death, they would. I'd spend the whole day out there and not see a soul. I could hardly move some days, and we had two kids by that stage, me and Kylie. I kept going somehow. I started chewing on painkillers. I didn't have any choice. Jono had sung the praises of a local doctor who everybody called Dr. Cheerful. What I didn't know was that Jono had turned himself into a junkie. I shouldn't have been surprised. He did like a bit of the old wacky-backy back home. He got me to see Dr. Cheerful. He pumped me up with even more stronger painkillers he did. Then he put a label on my shyness. According to him, it was no longer shyness, but generalised anxiety disorder. Dr. Cheerful pumped me full of pills for that, too. This doctor was called Dr. Cheerful because he looked like the doctor you see in those ads you see around on billboards. The ones that urge you to choose wisely and don't drink and drive. My Dr. Cheerful, unlike his look-alike, really did have a cheerful way of going about himself. I had the stupid belief that doctors could do no wrong, particularly my Dr. Cheerful. My Dr. Cheerful seemed like the answer to all my problems at the time. I had a wife and now four kids dependent on me, an anxiety problem and a back that was preventing me from doing the only job I could do, farm work. We moved to public housing in the town. The drugs helped the pain and anxiety and kind of took away my own judgement, replacing it with a cloudy haze. My Dr. Cheerful was becoming a bit of a guru to me. He also gave me a bit of work to supplement my pension and help pay for the pills he dished out. I get to the surgery, which was at the back of Dr. Cheerful's house. I get there about 8.30 after dropping the kids off at school. It was like a scene out of a zombie movie around there it was. And I was, I have to say it, just another one of his zombies. I was out of it much of the time. Nothing much was registering. Technically, I was first in in the morning, although I rarely was. The place was near the public housing area, and we were living in public housing ourselves within walking distance of that place. It was my job to get things ready, make sure there were no people passed out in front of the place. The place had a gate, and like cows waiting in front of the old milking shed, they would saunter in once the gate was open and sit on the back veranda of the house. The regulars had their spots on the veranda closest to the clinic. After that it was the first come, first serve. The place was always on the verge of being shut down, the only surgery in the area which had a tolerance for drug users. It was in everyone's best interest to make sure the place stayed open. Anything that could have given straight people on the way to work cause for complaint was quickly dealt with. Anyone who threatened the existence of the place and caused trouble didn't cause trouble for long. It was after working a year in the place that things began to get very bad very quickly. Dr. Cheerful was happy with me, though. Once I'd opened the place up, I'd work on the inside, filling the paper towels, gloves, and the soap dispensers giving the place a quick vacuum. Dr. Cheerful would arrive with Marge's wife, who was also the admin, who was also the nurse, and everything would be ready for the day's work. 
All going well, at that point I'd go home for a few hours, look after the young ones. About four o'clock I'd come back, empty the waste paper baskets and the sharps containers, empty the sanitary towel bins and shut up the shop. The doctor and his wife are never there after 4.30. Rooney, I'm not Australian. I come from a land down under too. Further down and further under than Australia. I come from New Zealand, Aotearoa, as the Maori call it. I had my New Zealand passport over my breast pocket and I had my hand over it when I pledged allegiance to Australia. In the citizenship ceremony when I was living over there, my Aussie mates loved that story. I think it appeals to their sense of disdain for pomp and protocol. And I love Australia too, land of the fair guy. I couldn't find work in New Zealand. I was thinking that my chances of being a psychologist were over. I thought maybe I'd be able to scrape through as a counsellor. I went to a college open day in Sydney with that thought in mind. They looked at my qualifications and said I would qualify for their graduate program. My first placement was in a dementia unit, working one day a week, tapping balloons to residents around the table. That was my introduction to working in psychology. They also set me up for supervision with a senior psychologist, one hour a week. My first supervisor would look down with disdain at my work boots on a pristine white shag pile carpet. I'd just come from work at the uni library, hauling cables for Don. Now I was a fully registered psychologist, and I was working at the Arsi, the biggest remand prison in the country. It was camped on a bit of swamp land between the Olympic Village and the multicultural suburban western Sydney mecca of Lakemba. I got a staff park this morning as I was early enough before most of the visitors started coming in. The guys at the gate waved me through. A visitor, a woman with a pram, was delayed there like some refugee at a border crossing, her black hijab fluttering in the hot summer breeze, adding to the effect. A van full of prisoners passed as I walked through. I could hear raucous sounds coming from the inside, and I could see vaguely rude gestures presented to me from the windows. If it wasn't for the fact that they were just coming into a prison, it could have been a bunch of housewives coming back from a Hunter Valley wine tour. The van proceeded around the side to the intake area. I went into the main entrance of the complex. I noted the absence of a police car parked outside the front. After this morning's encounter, I had enough of the police. A police car in a prison usually meant one thing, a death in custody, and to all the staff there, it felt as if your morning porridge had congealed into a concrete lump. If you had had much to do with the deceased, it would mean questions needed to be asked. A police statement and possibly standing in the witness stand of a coroner's court. It happened to me once, and once was enough. A week or two after I started at the RRC, I was asked to see an old Aboriginal bloke. We sat in the same interview room where a month earlier Ms Angel, the intern, had to do a rapid change of career. This Aboriginal bloke had been in prison before, 35 years before. I'm not sure why they wanted me to see him, but probably to cover their asses if anything happened to him. He was a matter of fact about it all. The charges were pretty minor, but for whatever reason, he couldn't make bail. There was no risk that I could see with this bloke, so we quickly cut out the formal stuff and just started chatting. 
he asked me where I was from and I told him I told him about my little country and he told me about his people and the land and he looked at me straight in the eye and he said welcome to my country it was like a kind of energy cloud formed around me and seeped into my skin I felt privileged for a second there quite emotional teary even I felt accepted in an unconditional way that was the real ceremony albeit less formal that I reckon gave me the right to be in Australia. There was a Kiwi guard at the RRC. His name was Rhys. Yes, the same one. He was lucky not to lose his job over the Fox incident. He would have been severely wrapped over the knuckles, but it would have been hushed up, kept in-house. There wasn't a custodial officer of whatever rank who at one time or another hadn't made a poor decision leading to someone getting hurt. It came with the territory. I know Rhys felt bad about it all, he told me. It probably contributed to his nervous disposition and was the reason he didn't sit upstairs in the interview rooms anymore. Rhys was on duty at the main entrance where staff and visitors come in. Maybe it suited him. I don't know. We were like the sheep. Staff sheep pooed it one way, visitor sheep the other. New Zealanders know how to manage sheep. Rhys greeted me with a nervous sheep-like. How's it going, Rune? I did the standard reply of, can't complain, while Reese casually checked my bag and ushered me through the metal detector. But then I thought about the cop, and I told Reese about the speeding ticket I'd just gotten. Australians tend not to talk about bad news, for fear of being called whingers. Us Kiwis also have an awkwardness over bad news, only we tend to almost gag when we hear it and struggle to change the subject, like we've acquired a piece of shit on the soles of our shoes and can't get it off. Rhys, true to his nationality, awkwardly sympathised and then said, deflectively, Still, eh? At least you won't have to deal with any inmates this morning. They're on lockdown and you guys have a union meeting. The central hub of the RRC is set out like a Roman villa, there's a large grassed outside-inside area where the peacocks roam, and there are several park benches where you can have your lunch. Usually it's a nice little haven. The RRC is a noisy place, particularly on lockdown days, but in that grassy patch, sound is muffled somewhat. A lot of the custodial staff were mingled around waiting for the morning muster. We non-custodial IDS inmate development staff when encountering morning muster, were expected to wait until it was all over. Savio was there in his trademark flannelette shirt and jeans, the most casual of casual attire. Unlike me, he was permanent staff. He could get away with his look. He always reminded me of the photo I had of Jack Kuriak on the dust cover of the copy of On the Road. I walked up to him. We nodded our hellos and waited silently for the ceremony to be over, and we could continue on our way. He to where he worked in another wing, me to my area. You owe me one, I said to Savio. Eh? You cost me $200 this morning. What? What do you mean? You'll find out. I left him there puzzled. We would likely catch up at lunchtime and I could tell him about how he inadvertently contributed to me getting a speeding fine. Not that I was expecting much sympathy. He'd probably just laugh. I walked through to D-Block where I worked and clipped one of those pesky duress alarms to my belt. 
To get to my offices, I had to walk through the pod where the inmates were housed. The custodial were hanging around in their fishbowl. The glassed-in circular arrangement of desks where they kept an eye on things. I nodded hello, grabbed a few files and walked across the expanse of the pod to the locked door at the far end. This morning, of course, the middle area was empty, being locked down. Normally it would be chock full of inmates, clustered in little groups, seated on those plastic chairs that wouldn't hurt if you threw them at somebody. I was still getting the, Oi chief, hello, what do you do? response when they saw me, a person without a uniform. But this time it was behind the closed doors of their cells. They saw non-uniformed staff like me as an opportunity to get some favour done. Experience had taught me that a response would inevitably result in them saying they needed to speak to me. I waited by the locked door at the end of the pod. This was the last of about half a dozen locked doors I had to wait for, for somebody to open since getting into the place. The theme to get smart running through my head as it always did at this point. I had to do my own, Oi, hello, to get someone in the fishbowl to notice me. I stood there like an idiot for a couple of seconds. Somebody laughed at my predicament. I made a step or two back to the fishbowl before I heard a click of the lock behind me to let me in. I swear they do it deliberately sometimes. You've got to get your last where you can find them in a place like that. I stepped into the stairwell, like Maxwell Smart stepping into the phone booth at the end of the opening credits. Simon The day before the cheerfuls went on holiday, I could see in the distance an ambulance, police cars, and Bill, that was Dr. Cheerful's first name, in his white lab coat, hunched over a body in the middle of the road. Dr. Cheerful looking distinctly not so cheerful as I got closer. I went inside the surgery and Marge was there, looking as white as her husband's lab coat. She got up when she saw me. The clinic couldn't be left unattended in the hands of Dr. Cheerful's junkie patients. Apparently Ted... One of the regulars had argued with Dr. Cheerful over a script, grabbed a handful of unsigned scripts and ran off. Dr. Cheerful let him go, but then they all heard the screech of brakes and the thud. To make matters worse, Ted had threatened to throw himself under a car. Everybody in the whole place heard him say it. Not one of them had went out to see if their mate was all right. They didn't care that one of their mates maybe had just died out there on the road. They didn't want to lose their place in the queue. Marge now had a chance to go out and help her husband, leaving me to man the fort. The whole thing was a bit of an eye-opener for me, it was. The waiting room was chock full of impatient junkies. All they cared about was getting something out of Dr. Cheerful before he shut up shop for the season. As the saying goes, it could have been their grandmother out there and they wouldn't have cared less. It wasn't doing my nerves any good, I tell you. They kept asking me when he's coming back. How should I know? I kept saying back to them. They seemed to think it was my fault. They were jeering each other up. This is putrid, I heard one of them say. Then they turned to me again as if I was part of some system designed to frustrate them. Hey, wanker, another one said to me. Who did you have to suck off to get that job? Bill or the missus? One or two laughed. Some of them had acted like my best friend the day before. Another one I hardly knew said to me, 
Have you got any of that oxycontin on you? That threw me even more. I started to stammer a bit when I get like that. I don't know what you mean, I said. They were right on the money, they were. When it comes to drugs, they didn't miss a beat. Luckily, I never carried it on me. Dr. Cheerful was discreet when he gave me my script, but there were eyes everywhere. They probably noticed when I picked up the dose from the chemist. When they weren't hanging around the clinic, that was the other place they hung around, that or Needlestick Park. We don't care what you say, mate. We know. We also know where you live. It didn't take a genius to work that one out. I was a houser just like they were. It was like they were a pack of wild dogs, it was. They'd isolated the weakest one and now they were closing in. That daughter of yours is looking a bit hot these days, one said. I might have to break her in. Too late, mate, another says. I already did that last week. They all laughed their cynical laughs. I could take it when they had a go at me. I didn't think much of myself either. I know I wasn't much of a father, but having a go at my kids, that was crossing the line. I made a move towards the one who made the last remark. He was thin and scrawny, even more than I was. I reckon I could have taken him on, but I couldn't have taken on the lot of them. One big one stood in front of me. Sit down, you little toe rag. Can't you take a joke? I pointed to the guy who made the remark. You, you, but the words wouldn't come out. The big guy mimicked me. You, you'll do what? Run home and tell your mum? It was like I was in the schoolyard again, and I was defending my sister. The big guy gave me a shove. Go back and crawl under your desk. I took a deep breath, turned and went back. The little guy piped up. Yeah, I did your missus too. How do you know, you poof? Don't call me a poof, the other one piped up. I'm not the one who sells my ass down Macquarie Street. Good, they're having a go at each other now. It took the heat off me. That day really made things worse, it did. My social phobia got worse as I didn't have a reason to get out and open the clinic. Plus the remarks of those guys really hit home. I was thinking there were eyes on me whenever I walked out the door. I was worried about Mia too. She was getting to the age where she wanted to be out with her friends, and I didn't like it. She was starting to rebel. Her skirt seemed to be getting shorter and shorter. I'd tell her to put something else on before she went out. She hated that, she did. I'd want her home by 11. That caused arguments as well. Donna backed me up most of the time, but even then she was starting to tell me I was taking things a bit far. Donna's family were religious like mine, but even more so. At home, we weren't part of an organised church. Dad would have us just reading passages from the Bible at night. He'd actually pulled us out of church because he reckoned they weren't teaching us the right things. Donna's lot, though, they were into religion in a big way and went to one of those brethren churches. Still do. I think that's why Donna latched on to me so quickly as a way of getting out of there. They pretty much excluded her once she left to marry me. She did keep in contact with her sister Ruth. Ruth was into religion in a big way. She never liked me. Ruth thought I was leading her little sister astray. All this time it was like living in a fog, it was. Every time I'd go to the chemist I'd feel eyes on me. That feeling got worse after all the drama at the clinic. To make matters worse, one day I caught Mia sneaking out with a short skirt and a bag. She was planning on changing into it at a friend's place. I grounded her then and there, I did. 
grounded her for six weeks. Donna thought I was being a bit harsh, but I stuck to my guns. It backfired on me, though, in a big way. I didn't know at the time of the grounding that Mia had started seeing somebody. It was a kid at this state. It was a bad time for me, it was. I'd be home all the time, more and more afraid to go out, spinning out from the drugs Dr. Cheerful had given me. I wasn't working either while Dr. Cheerful was away. The only reason I had to go out was to go to the pharmacy, and I tried to go when those guys who hung around the clinic went there. It shook me, it did, that last day that Dr. Cheerful was in the clinic. One day, one of the rare times I was out, cop car cruised past, gave me a little peep of a siren to get my attention. Problem was, he got everyone else's attention as well. Here I was, nervous and jittery, standing out on the street, talking to a couple of cops. Cops can smell anxiety, I reckon. One of them was a bit of a smart-ass. He seen me go to the clinic and probably assumed I was a junkie like everybody else. I reckon I probably looked like a junkie too, I did. I was thin as a rake, I was. I could hardly keep my food down. I had big rings under my eyes because I wasn't sleeping. When the cops come up to me, all sorts of thoughts come into my head. I was thinking that they thought I had something to do with the guy that died that morning. This cop gave me the third degree, he did. He asked me where I was going. I started stuttering like I always did, and I was short of breath. I was thinking I was about to have a panic attack. I managed to get out that I was just going to the shops. Cop wanted to know what shops. I told him I was going to the chemist. Bit late to be picking up your methadone, isn't it? I told him I wasn't on methadone. His buddy was behind him at the wheel of the car, grinning like it was some sort of entertainment. But then he said, serious like, there's been a break-in at the clinic, and did I know anything about it? I told him I had no idea, which I didn't. It didn't surprise me about the break-in. It happened all the time. They had bars up at the clinic, but a desperate junkie would do anything. I must have looked all white. I could barely stand up. I felt I was about to faint. The one who was grinning said, Are you all right, mate? I told him no, I wasn't, and that I was going to head home. They said climb in, but give me a lift. Normally I'd turn them down, but this time I felt a full-blown panic attack coming on. I needed to get home as soon as possible. That was another big mistake, climbing into that cop car. There were eyes and ears everywhere around that neighbourhood. They'd seen me looking very nervous, climbing into a cop car, and at the other end, getting out of a cop car. The cops pulled up right outside my place. Probably the whole block saw me get out. They'd all be thinking, either I'd done something, or I'd dobbed someone in. I should have played it casual. I should have said, thanks for the lift, I'm right now, or words like that. Instead, I couldn't get out of that car fast enough. I run up those stairs like my life depended on it. The cops, though, they're brazen, they are. They must have been having a quiet morning. They followed me up there, caught up with me on the landing, fumbling with my keys. I just got the door open in time. I said to them I'd be right now, got in and shut the door before they had time to reply. I stood there behind the door. My heart was thumping like it was about to explode through my chest. I tried to calm my breathing. It wasn't working very well. I waited for the panic attack to happen, which of course it didn't. It's a bugger like that. I think the cops just thought it was a great joke. 
I could hear them laughing to themselves as they made their way back down the stairs. It took a good few days to get over that one, I tell you. Then the problem started to happen with Mia. The kid she had started hanging around with, he was a kind of leader of the kids around the estate. His name was Tyler Briggs, but everyone called him Briggsy, which led to a bit of confusion because his father was also called Briggsy. Briggsy, the old man, was just out of prison early on a good behaviour bond. The day he was out of prison, he turned back up at the estate as if he had never left the place. It's the same thing when he went to the clinic. He might have been one of those ones who gave me a hard time in the waiting room that day. I'm not sure. It's all a bit cloudy to me. All around the state for a while it was. Hey Briggsy this, hey Briggsy that. You never knew if it was the son or the old man. One thing I didn't know though, I did. They were both bad news they were. The apple didn't fall far from the tree when it came to the sun. Then Mia snuck out and didn't come back. She was supposed to be on curfew. Me and Donna, well Donna more than me, asked around the estate but nobody was saying anything. I had my suspicions that she was off with Tyler so I was keeping an eye out for him. Every time I'd hear the word Briggsy, I'd look out the window, but it was always the old man and not Tyler. Finally I thought, enough's enough. The police weren't interested. Mia was only 15 she was, and the cops weren't interested. They'd said, call back if we hadn't heard in 24 hours. In 24 hours, anything could happen. I went down and spoke to Briggsy Senior. I was shaking in my boots, I was. I asked him whether he knew where my daughter was. How should I know where your fucking daughter is? Trying to find her so you can have some fun with her, are you? I ignored that. I shouldn't have. I should have stood up for myself. But I was only concerned with finding Mia. Plus those pills Dr. Cheerful was feeding me didn't help matters. I told him that she'd started hanging out with Tyler. And maybe Tyler might have an idea where she was. Listen, mate. I don't know where your daughter is and Tyler's not around, so fuck off. I turned and walked away. This was going nowhere. Yeah, go back to your hole, you pussy wet little toe rag. As I was walking up the stairs, the more I thought about it, the more I was certain that Briggsy was the big guy at the clinic that morning. The woman's network got a better result. One of the mums told Donna that she had seen Mia and Tyler hanging around the park in town. I went straight down there, I did. They were there all right. And Mia looked like she hadn't slept for a week. She was spaced out on something. I knew she was. I went up to her and grabbed her by the arm. You're coming home, young lady. Fuck off, she said. I wasn't in the mood to argue. Come on, Mia. We're going. Fuck off. She tried to wrench my arm away. It was a real shock to me, it was. She had never spoken to me that way. I saw red, I did. I gave her a backhander with my free hand and tried to get her up. A big kid stood on our way. It had to have been Tyler. He was like a smaller version of his old man, but not that much smaller. Fuck off, he said. You heard her. I went to grab him, 
this little prick wasn't going to get away with it. Then somebody king hit me from behind. I didn't see it coming. I dropped like a sack of spuds, I did. I blacked out for a minute. Somebody kicked me in the ribs. That woke me up. I staggered to my feet. There were three of them, all kids I'd seen around the estate, all equally as big as Tyler. I looked around. Tyler and Mia were nowhere to be seen. One of them said, You better fuck off, old man. Tyler and Mia have gone to the cop shop. You're going to be charged with assault. I looked around again, still a bit groggy. I could have taken those kids on, I reckon, but what would that prove? I needed to get down to the police station, get it sorted, but at that point I didn't even know where the cop shop was. The one who spoke gave me a shove, nearly knocked me down again. I walked and staggered off. Everybody was yelling and jeering at me. Yeah, fuck off, old man. By the time I got there, I must have looked like quite a state, I reckon. Mia was being ushered through the door at the side of the front counter. The woman cop who was following behind saw me coming. She knew who I was without being told. You need to stay here, sir, she said, flat palm towards me. I'm her father. I need to be there. No, you don't, sir. She needs to make a statement. Mia, I yelled at her. Mia didn't turn. It was like I never existed. That visit to the cop shop changed everything it did. I didn't know what to do. I felt a panic attack coming on while I was waiting. But somehow I kept it together. I waited for an hour in that waiting room. Finally, one of the cops come out and told me that they had spoken to Donna and she was getting together some overnight clothes for Mia and that the social services were involved and that they would be in touch. I told them I wasn't leaving without my daughter. He said again exactly what was happening and that Mia wasn't going to be coming home with me and the best I could do was leave. I started to yell and the cop cautioned me again. The panic was really starting to kick in now. Somehow I staggered out the door. My heart was thumping like it was about to burst out of my chest. I couldn't breathe. I stood doubled over on the path by the gate. Then I threw up over their agapanthus. I took off then, thinking they would probably come out and charge me over that too. I thought about that night a lot. I wondered if that cop would be so calm if it was one of his kids reported missing and then told he couldn't see her, couldn't take her home where she belonged. 